Thank you, Simon. Uh, yeah, I, so I, I started uh, doing these uh, radical morning studies. Uh, actually, Door of Hope is birthed out of a morning study. I, I, John Mark, the pastor of Bridgetown, which used to be a Jesus church, which before that was called Solid Rock. Uh, I worked at Solid Rock actually for two years, and uh, my preaching experience there was a 6 a.m. Wednesday morning study that started in the book of Romans with about six people. And, and by the end of it, there was about 300 people that were coming in the morning at, 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 on a Wednesday morning. And that's when I started to feel like maybe I should consider starting a church. Uh, and uh, the, the initial crew out of Door of Hope uh, was that morning study, the, crew, the group that was actually living in the city at the time, because my wife and I, we met uh, 20 well, we married 20 years in October, um, but we met 21 years ago at the Satyricon before either of us were believers. I was the lead singer of a band called Man Ray. We were playing uh, with this band called the Dandy Warhols here in Portland, uh, and my wife walked in. I said, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life, and she believed me and took me home because we were pagans. Um, but now we love Jesus, and we don't give advice on dating. Uh, so, but that's not what my message is about today. Uh, so, uh, all that to say, God um, has always put Portland on our hearts. Darcy grew up here. I grew up just outside of Portland. Uh, we've we had a, a real love for the East Side specifically. Uh, just the Bohemian culture, it's something we understood. It's something we came from. We both became believers late in life, me at 28 and her at 33. Um, and so, uh, God has just given us a passion for the city. Uh, and for the people of this city. And, and uh, the crazy thing is God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise, and he's blessed door of hope, uh, and, and I believe he's blessing Grace City. And this is why I told Simon that this is a, we'd like you to use this building, because that's what happened to us. We had a church uh, offer us a building that they weren't utilizing uh, over off of Hawthorne and 20th, where we were for the first five years as an evening service. Uh, before we renovated this building. In fact, I spent nine months uh, as basically a general contractor for this building because it was burgundy carpet, pink walls, crowded pews. Uh, you're sitting in all the chairs that I handpicked personally over a three-month period because it was cheaper than buying new ones. Uh, and, and I handpicked every single mug on that wall unless, unless it's been... We have people in our church that would steal our mugs and replace them with lame Christmas present mugs. And I... You can tell the mugs that are not from me because they're, they're lame. They're like usually like some ornate, just like my aunt gave this to me mug. And so I would break them. I used to have a sign on the wall. I literally would break any bad mug. that I'm, I'm like, I didn't pick that mug and I just throw it because I wouldn't want it to be up on the wall. I was very particular about the aesthetic. <laughs> so this is my first time preaching in this space since we moved into Revolution Hall um, uh, over a year ago. So it's great to be here with you guys this morning. Okay, so that was a long rambling introduction. Uh, what I want to talk with you guys about today uh, is a word that's in the name of your church. Uh, one thing I've been uh, convicted by as a, as, a, as a pastor and even as a Christian, especially early on in my Christian life, is that there's a vocabulary that we utilize as Christians that we utilize so often that we never actually stop to ask the question, do I even know what that word means? And to prove this reality, I'm going to call on a couple of you randomly to define for me some Christian words. Are you guys ready? So, faith, you. No, I'm just joking. I would, I would never do that to you. <laughs> that's, that's so stressful. But if you really are to ask yourself the question, what does faith mean? 
What does, what does sanctification mean? What does grace mean? And grace is the word I want to deal with today. Now, I'm going to read to you a verse out of Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to actually spend our time considering grace out of Psalm 139. But I just want to read this verse because this, this states something profound. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. There's that word, but what does that actually mean? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his, there it is again, grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So this word grace is an important word, isn't it? Super important, but what does it actually mean? Now, there are all sorts of technical, theological ways of defining grace. There's also pithy ways that American evangelicals define grace to help their people remember it. Uh, in fact, when I got saved, I got saved into a church, and I remember one of the first sermons I heard, uh, I, re- I received this insightful definition of grace uh, utilizing uh, the first, each letter of the word, God's riches at Christ expense. Does that actually explain anything? Like, how helpful is that? God's riches at, well, what riches? What kind of riches? Like material blessings upon our lives? Physical health upon our lives? What are the riches? At Christ's expense, what expense? It doesn't actually define the word grace for us. In fact, this passage here in Ephesians 2 tells us that grace is so essential that it's the means by which we are saved. So grace, I think... Is, is, is the essence, the center of the gospel, but what does it actually mean? And so here's the thing. We can get very technical about our theological vocabulary, but it's not technicality that God is interested in. In fact, everything that God reveals about himself in Scripture is directly connected to his relationship with us. Do you know that? There's nothing that is stated about God, by God, in the Scriptures that is not directly connected to his relationship with us. That God in the essence of his being is in a relational God. That God is a community within himself and that he created us in his image. And that doesn't mean that as some people say that being created in the image of God means that we can think and feel and will. That's a component of being made in the image of God. But really what it means to be made in the image of God means that we were meant for relationship. And the essence of sin is something that destroys relationship with God, with others, and with ourselves. When sin entered into the world, the relational realities of being made in the image of God was corrupted. It was affected. doesn't mean that everything we do is bad. It means that every good thing we do is infiltrated with something not good. And so when we talk about grace, what we're talking about is God's, God's willingness to actually enter into humanity's brokenness. So when we say that God became a man, it's not just Jesus identifying with our humanity, but it's something even more profound. Grace is directly connected to Jesus' willing to identify with our lowest point, our sin. It's his willingness to actually, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So grace, if it means anything, it means Emmanuel. Emmanuel. 
It means God with us. It means that God doesn't nearly exist above us or even next to us, but that he exists with us and for us. It refers to a God who does not sweep our needs, concerns, lacks, wants, or problems under the rug, but he literally takes them up and makes them his own and answers and solves them better than we can know or desire. It means that there is no tear too small for him to collect. God's grace is God's absolute reluctance to exist without you. So profound. But how do we define grace then? I think one way we can define it is that grace is God making us receptive for him and himself for us. It comes as a gift without reservation or conditions, for it originates out of the depth of, God, of who God is in himself, and Jesus is the center of that reality. So I want to show to you that the grace of God is seen not simply in the New Testament. I just gave you sort of the technical realities of this relational um, centerpiece of the Christian life, that God created us to be in relationship with him. And that relationship has been hurt by sin, and that grace is God's solution to our dilemma, our broken reality. And he entered into that brokenness and took it into himself and restored the possibility of relationship with him. And grace comes to us freely. It's God's gift to us in his son, Jesus. And I want to show you what the facets of God's grace looks like. And we can find those facets in Psalm 139. It's profound because grace is not a word that is really utilized in the Old Testament, but it's evident on every page. And in Psalm 139, David, the psalmist, writes this very beautiful psalm that's often utilized to come up, theologians often utilize it to come up with what we call attributes of God. But the attributes of God are not helpful. It's not helpful to tell someone that God is omniscient because that, A, nobody uses that word. It's not helpful to tell people that God is omnipresent because it's not helpful. It's not useful. It's not helpful to tell people that God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful. It's not helpful. It's not useful because everything that God reveals about himself is directly connected to his relationship with us, the relationship that he desires to have with us. And David is dealing with personal knowledge here, not technical knowledge, okay? So let me begin. There are three facets of God's grace seen in Psalm 139. The first one is this. In, in chapter, Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Theologians call this, what? Omniscience. God knows everything. Is that Does that comfort you? God knows everything. I think it's creepy if it's not relational. If God just knows everything about me, how is that helpful to me? It's not helpful. But what if it is about his knowledge of us? What if grace means that I'm known? Grace means, number one, that I am known. You see, God's knowledge is never for knowledge's sake. He knows everything about us because he loves us, because he desires to know us and for us to know him. 
What David is saying is that, Lord, you are the creator of the universe, the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, and yet you care about me, a single human being among millions and millions of human beings. You care about me. You know my thoughts. Why does he know his thoughts? Because he cares about David's thoughts. You know my ways. You know everything there is about me. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down acquainted with everything about me. What this tells us is that God knows every detail about us because he cares. He cares about you. I think that one of the things that happens in Christianity is that we become detached from the emotional, relational reality of our God. That our Christianity, in many ways, we tend to function like practical atheists. We say we believe these things about God, but we do not live relationally in regards to them. Do you live with, an, with a daily recognition that God is with you? He knows you. He is for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you live with that reality? I think that this is so powerful because what this tells us is that he knows because he cares. The gospel is good news. Grace is beautiful because it reveals a God who has taken the initiative. And the answer is why to the why is because he cares. It's his nature to love. And he, is this, he, and he has sovereignly chosen. I always say that God's love is elective love. And what I mean by that is not that he chooses some to love and some to hate. His love is elective in that he chooses to love sinners in their sin. It's his freedom and his prerogative. It's beautiful. The question that we often ask is, how can God really know me, though? If God is without sin, how can he know me? I mean, isn't a big part of what we are defined by our sinfulness? our fundamental brokenness. So how can God actually know me? How can, we, how can he really say that he knows me if he is without sin? But what are we told about Jesus? That he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We can't say that Jesus doesn't understand our brokenness. We can't even say that he doesn't understand our sin. Though, although he did not personally sin, he became sin. He felt the full weight of its brokenness, and he alone was able to see it through all the way to its bitter end. He drank the dregs of the brokenness of the world. He took the hell that we create for ourselves fully into himself and he dealt with it once and for all on the cross of Calvary. So it's not just that he understands our humanity, he actually understands our lowest point. This is why Hebrews calls him our sympathetic high priest. He knows us, every element of us, even our horrible, gross parts. That's why when we tell people to give themselves to God, we're not asking them to give this or that part of them. God isn't interested in your good parts. He's interested in you, which means that you give to him the crummy as well as the gift, the, the intelligence as well as the stupidity. God wants all of you because he's a God who cares about who you are. It's powerful. Dorothy Sayers in Creator Chaos said it best when she said, for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is limited in suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and he has played fair. I think it's a beautiful depiction of the gospel. For through Jesus, we find God is not just involved with the suffering of the world, but identified fully with it. His sympathy is not what we get. We get his engagement, his involvement. Grace means I am 
known. Grace means I am known. Say that with me. Grace means I am known. Okay, secondly, in verses 7 through 12, it says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Literally, hell. People ask the question, is God in hell? Is God in hell? Theological question. Someone just said no. Someone nodded. There is no place that God is not. The technical term that we utilize for this is omnipresence, meaning God is everywhere. And when it says we, in 1 Thessalonians that God puts people out of his, that hell is a place where he puts them out of our presence, that word presence is actually a relational word. It literally means not his physical separation, but ontological, or excuse me, not ontological separation, but relational separation. There is no place that God is not. Hell itself is contained by God's love and mercy. It's a place where he says, sin shall go no farther, but the possibility of knowing him is not there. But that's a side note. I just thought I'd give it to you for fun. Okay, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. So God's grace is not simply that I am known God's grace means also that I am not alone. One of the fundamental needs of the human heart in today's society, do you know that since 2012 with the rise of the iPhone, they just released a study in the New York Times, it's fascinating, uh, that, and there's a book coming out on it, that millennials who have been basically raised on the iPhone, that the increase in, in teen suicide, loneliness and despair existential crisis has actually surpassed numbers like it's the highest it's ever been. It's it's funny to me, uh, it's not funny, it's tragic that the more advanced we become, the more distance we are from one another. The longer we live, the lonelier we are. The more we have, the less we feel like we're in control of anything. There is, a, there is an existential despair. I think that uh, David Foster Wallace defined it best in his profound book, which everybody should read because it's the greatest book of the last 50 years, Infinite Jest. He says that he wrote the book because he wanted to capture what he called it a peculiar American loneliness. This reality of solipsism, the fear of dying having only loved oneself. And I think that, that Wallace was on to something. Wallace himself committed suicide uh, in 1997 uh, at 40 years old. Uh, his own genius, he was willing to look directly into the eyes of all the problems and dilemmas of society, but unfortunately he wasn't functioning from the solution of Jesus. And depression and anxiety got the best of him, and he ended up ending his life. But before he died, he was able to write some of the most profound literature of the last 50 years that captures so profoundly what our, our demographic, Gen X down, is experiencing, which is the more, uh, the more technologically savvy our society becomes, the more detached we become from one another. And people feel alone. You can be sitting in a crowd and feel utterly alone. And what the scripture declares and what we need to cling to as Christians is that grace, if it means anything, means that God is actually not simply for us, but he is with us. Jesus said in the Great Commission, he says, and lo, I am what? With you, always. As he was leaving, he said, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's almost like this paradoxical statement. How is he with us? How is he with us? 
by his spirit. He says, it's good that I go to my father because if I go to the father, then the helper can come to you, the spirit of truth, and he will guide you into all truth and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. God's presence is with his people. And what he utilizes us as is conduits by which he can make known to the world his absolute care and love. You always talk about election. This is the reality. God chose you that through you he might save everyone. That's the reality. That's the desire, the heart of God, is that he wants to save. And he does that by functioning within us. We become the temple of God. We are not alone. What David is recognizing, and he didn't even have the full picture of it. He didn't have the Holy Spirit in the same way that we have it on this side of the cross. But he recognized God's presence with him. And it's amazing how much he understood grace without even having a word for it. When he says, where shall I go? There's nowhere that I can be that you're not, God. It's it's like Jacob. I think that this is how we function. Remember when Jacob had the dream, he laid his head on the rock, and when he woke, he had this vision of a ladder from heaven, and angels were ascending and descending upon the ladder. And then when he woke up, he said, God is in this place, and I did not know it. I think that's how we often function. We're not functioning with an awareness of God's presence. And I would just say this. This is is the, the... I think a side note that one of the possibilities, if you are one of those people that's not experiencing the presence of God, is that you need to actually take heed to what your pastor just called you to. Door of Hope has an emphasis. We have four pillars that we have focused our church on. The cross, we preach Christ and him crucified. That's our theology. That's the center of everything we do. If we're not talking about Jesus, we're not preaching. Secondly, it's life together. And that is that it's more, I worked at too many mega churches where church was just simply what you came and did on Sunday. You watched the preacher work and then you went home and went back to your business. And so we we made a commitment in the beginning of the church that Door of Hope would be about intentional life together as a community around the person of Christ. Just like Acts, in the book of Acts, what did it say? They gathered daily in the temple and from house to house. And they were constantly together. In fact, every true revival, one of the great signs of a true revival is that God's people cannot get enough of each other. And why does God call us to be together? Because everything that God is about is about a restoration of relationship because he's a relational God. And one of the primary ways that God makes himself known and real is when God's people come close enough together that we can sense the Spirit's activity in one another. It's very, very difficult, if not I would argue, impossible to be a Christian alone. See, modern evangelicalism has turned the gospel into a personal decision for Jesus. And what we mean by personal is private, but that is not what the Bible means. When the Bible talks about personal, it's talking about relational. It's not talking about privacy. You are not saved into a vacuum. You are saved into a family. And you don't get to pick your family. And believe me, Christians are the best and the weirdest people I know. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) So this is the reality. We're called to give ourselves to one another. And it's when we do that that we begin to see the very presence of Jesus because we're the temples of God. And that's how we actually come to know God in a very intimate way. I even believe the giftings. I I never, when someone comes up to me and goes, God told me I'm supposed to be a worship leader. I'm like, well, did he tell anyone else? Because if he hasn't, then I don't know. Because actually I believe the gifts that the Spirit distributes to the church as he sovereignly sees fit is actually discovered by the recognition of the community. Not in a, it's not done in a vacuum. 
Uh, in fact, uh, I, I think that what God communicates to us or calls us to, he will often reveal through someone identifying that gift in you and when you live close enough to people to actually be known and to know. And in that process, we actually know that God is actually with us. So grace doesn't just simply mean I am known. It means I am not alone. So say that with me. Grace means I am not alone. Grace means I am not alone. Okay, third And this is the third facet of grace that we see in Psalm 139 in verses 13 through 16. It says, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well for my frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your books were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What is David reflecting on here? He's reflecting on God's power, God's creative realities. And this is the thing about grace, is that, and I often say this about God's love, we can say it about God's grace, is that if God's love begins with his elective love, he chooses to love sinners and their sin, His love is, he's a holy God, which means that his love is also purifying, and that means he's not content to leave us there. The grace doesn't just simply mean I am known. It doesn't simply mean I am not alone, but grace means I have the power to change. I have the power to live differently. I think too many churches focus on grace as a way of of accepting sinful patterns and saying, well, this is just the way I am, but thank goodness that God just loves me as I am. Come as you are, but it doesn't mean stay as you are. He may meet us, and this is truth, that no matter how deep of a hole you dig for yourself, and we will all dig holes for ourselves at different times in our lives. In fact, the greatest enemy that you will face in life is not the devil, it's your own ego. The greatest reality around sin is sin is not the little things that you do wrong. Sin is the rebellion against God's sovereign rule over your life because the flesh constantly has the ability to resurrect itself from the dead. This is why we have to daily present ourselves as living sacrifices. But here's the thing is that grace is God's presence within us empowering us to actually follow hard after him. It's the beauty of the sanctifying presence of the Spirit within us. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. David recognized I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But what makes him fearfully and wonderfully made is that just that, that God is the one who did it. And wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And he says, you have written for me. You've already prepared for me a plan. And I just want to be engaged in that plan. I want to actually step into the path that you have for me, oh God. And he believes that God has the power to fulfill that which God wills. Now, here's the thing is that God's grace, also because it's about his restored relationship with us, for a relationship to be real, it means that there has to be a certain amount of freedom. And I would argue that if the gospel is anything, it is a gospel of freedom. But when the gospel, you weren't free when you were dead in your sin. You were a slave to sin and you were dead. But once you're resurrected, you are resurrected into new life 
And that new life means that you are, Jesus says, whoever the Son of Man says free shall be free indeed. And that gospel of liberation, as you grow in your likeness to Christ, your freedom increases as well. But with the freedom, it's not the freedom to do what we want, it's the freedom to do what is right. But the freedom to do what is right also leaves open the possibilities is the freedom to do what we ought not to. This is why it's possible to be a follower of Jesus, save soul, and have a wasted life. Because the sanctification process requires on our part a daily. This is why Paul commands us to be filled with the Spirit. It's not that you have control over the Spirit. It's not that you get more of the Spirit than you got when you got saved. To be filled with the Spirit... To be under the control of the Spirit means that it's not you getting more of the Spirit, it's the Spirit getting more of you. And so the power to change means there needs to be a willingness on our side to submit. I always say that the only right we really have as Christians, the truest freedom that we have is to surrender. And it's also the hardest thing that we do every day. Because I know my own tendency is is to take advantage of God's grace and to take that freedom and not do what is right with it but do what I want with it, which just brings about a distancing between me and God. And, and to know God and to know intimately that you are known by him and that he is with you requires that you surrender to him and follow hard after him. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, which tells us that the Christian life is not static. It's going somewhere. So how do we respond to grace? Really quickly, I want to just share with you these things. So there are three responses that David has to this beautiful grace, this reality that I am known, that I am not alone, and that I have the power to change. And the first response is found in verses 17 and 18, and it's amazement. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Notice, he is so blown away by God's knowledge of him, by God's presence with him, by God's power over his life, that the only appropriate response for Christians. I think this is so important. And this is the question. Are you amazed by what God has done for you? I think I am sometimes so grateful that I didn't come to Christ until I was 28 years old. Because at 28, I knew all that the world had to offer and to discovered how empty and broken it was and the trail of wreckage that I had left behind that when I got saved, I knew what I had been saved from. And I think that sometimes for those who have grown up in the church and have basically been under the influence of their parents and they're kind of living on the fumes of their parents' faith, that there isn't this recognition of amazement and they're bored with Jesus. And I think that true, a, a true run, the the, the The litmus test for whether or not you understand grace, you want to know if you understand grace, is that you are stinking blown away. Grace means I am never bored. That's a dirty word in my family. Boredom is, is, uh, is born out of laziness and a lack of amazement. A sacramental cast is what we need. It's the ability to recognize God in every arena of our lives. It's the ability to see his beauty in everything. And when you have been touched by his goodness, by his presence, when you know that the creator of the universe knows you, that he cares about you, that he's with you, and that he desires to bring transformation to your life, the only appropriate response is that I should be amazed. I'm amazed. I saw this profoundly with my friend Craig who died of cancer. He got saved uh, he got saved the first month of Door of Hope. Him and his wife both. They're both pediatricians. 
And six months later, uh, he went into a seizure on January 1st, 2010. Uh, and his wife, being a doctor, knew exactly what was wrong. She took him straight to the emergency room, and sure enough, they found a golf ball-sized tumor in his brain. And Craig Dunn is an amazing man who is a brand-new Christian. I remember I went and visited him the day after they removed the tumor from his head, and, and I walked in, and he's just like, he, he, looked, he looked like death. And he's just like, had this big smile on, my, on his face, and he's like, Jesus, save me. I'm not I'm not dead. He was told that he was going to die within probably two to five years. But he's like, I'm alive. And the nurse comes in and he, and, and he says, hey, this is my pastor, Josh. Josh, tell her about the gospel. I'm like, sweet <laughs> Lord. Did they remove a filter when they removed that tumor? <laughs> Over the next five, he survived almost five years with that tumor. And it came back. Second time, second major surgery. He kept getting weaker. Uh, he almost died of infection. And then finally it got him. And I remember the call I got. He was on a family vacation across the, across the U.S. They were in Indiana and um, in, in, in visiting family. And he went into another seizure. They took him in and they discovered that the tumor had just exploded on both sides of the brain. And that he had less than 30 days to live. And he called me scared. And he could barely talk, and Catherine, I, he had to keep giving the phone to Catherine because he, he was so weakened by b- being so sick. And, uh, and he just, I just remember him saying to me, he's like, I'm so scared, like in this whispery voice. And I just said, Craig, I'm, it's, it was Sunday, I just had finished preaching, I said, listen, I'm getting on a plane, I'll, I'll fly out there, I'll, 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 be, I'll be there tomorrow morning. Uh, and so I got on a plane and I actually escorted his two oldest daughters back with them. Uh, they had to actually, I stood in a room while, while Catherine uh, and Craig told their three daughters that Craig was going to die in 30 days. I felt like I was some sort of voyeur in the most intense and personal uh, thing I've ever experienced. But here's the thing with Craig is that Craig was afraid because any person's going to be afraid. It's the great unknown. It's the final enemy death stinks. It's always horrible. Jesus conquered death. Uh, but for the Christian, there's, it says death has lost its sting because death is merely the means by which we are ushered into more life. And that's the hope, the hope of a resurrection, the hope of power. But here's the thing with Craig is that even though he was afraid, his courage was in that he never lost his amazement of the gospel. All the way up to the end, I remember we, he died with a group of us standing around his bed singing worship songs over him. When he was in the hospital in Indianapolis, I stayed there for a week with him, and, and I just remember going up to him and I said, Craig, you are going to finish well. I know you're scared, but you need to live with the amazement of the gospel on your heart. God is with you. He knows you. He is, the, he is changing you. Though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being daily renewed. And I just remember he just, he just needed his pastor there because God often makes himself known, his presence known through us. And as he just felt the presence of God, uh, as Catherine and I prayed over him, I remember his nurse came in. Here's a man who had had all dignity removed from him. He, he can't make love to his wife. He's not going to watch his daughters graduate from high school or walk them down the aisle. His job, he's one of the best pediatricians on the West Coast. He can't, can't function as a doctor. He can't even change himself and has to lay in bed and watch grown-ups come in and bathe his body and change his diaper. And yet he did all of it with a smile on his face and amazement. 
He did everything with this, this childlike wonder that was infectious, even when it was the most humiliating. I remember once I had to care, like three weeks before he died, he got back, to, back here and I took him out to lunch and he couldn't get out of his wheelchair and I had to pick him up, but he was so heavy um, that I, f- I fell with him into the, uh, in front of the, the car seat, like onto the floor. And I was like entangled with him, laying on top of him. And he's like laying underneath me with no function of his body. And he just goes, that was awesome. I'm like, I'm like, that's... This is so awkward. I'm like, I'm so sorry. And he goes, he's just laughing at me, like snickering. And I just like that, how does one live when they're on the verge of dying? It's the amazement of the gospel. It's the amazement of the gospel. Grace means I'm never bored. I saw that grace lived out so powerfully. He knew that he was known. He knew that God was with him. He knew that he was being transformed. And because of that, he was amazed. And the testimony that came through his life because of that amazement was infectious. His dad got saved at his funeral. It's incredible. And I think that this is the thing is that we think we got to go out and share the gospel, but we're so bored with it. It's like, what, what, what do we have that others want? Is there anything in your life that actually would make Jesus appealing to others? When people ask you what Jesus is like, are you comfortable saying he's like me? That's what Paul said. We think that sounds blasphemous, but Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's convicting, isn't it? Look at this. We're almost done. 19 through 22. The second litmus test, the second reaction to grace is this, oh, that you would slay the wicked. Where did this come from? Oh, God, oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Why don't we ever put that into our worship songs? (laughs) There's plenty of songs where you're like, this is what the Jews sang? We're like, dash my enemies' babies' heads against rocks. You're like, where is this coming from? This this does not seem like what Jesus preached. Love our enemies. But keep in mind, David, who was his greatest enemy while he was alive? Saul. Did he ever raise a finger against Saul? No, he didn't. In fact, he refused. He beheaded someone who did. He said, this is his anointed one. So what is David doing? He is doing the only rash thing that we should ever do with our frustration, with our anger, is bring it directly to God. Notice what it is not, though. It is not anger about how he is being treated. It's anger over the glory of God. So what does this tell us about grace? Grace means I am devoted. It means I am not divided. What this is a picture of is the total loyalty of David to Yahweh over the world. And that anyone that would speak poorly about this God who loves, who is present, who knows, he's like, it infuriated him. He was so obsessed with the glory and the honor of God. He was committed to Yahweh. And the question for us is, are we divided? Do we have that same kind of loyalty? Do we love what is good and hate what is evil? Do we believe the things that Jesus called light? Do we hold to those things? And we do, do we understand the things that he called darkness? Because I think that often Christians play around in the gray so comfortably. But what we need to understand about gray is that gray is still dark. And I think that what this gives us a picture of is the picture of godliness, a realization that I am not to be divided. So grace means I am never bored. Grace 
The response means I am not divided. I am loyal. I am loyal to my king. Finally, and in closing, verses 23 and 24, the third response to grace. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I think that this is a profound statement because he recognizes that God knows him. He recognizes that God is with him. He recognizes that God has the power to change him. He is amazed. He is loyal and not divided. And he, instead of asking God, can you bless me with this or that thing? He doesn't treat God like a cosmic Santa Claus. What he does instead is that he is, recognizes that surrender is the key to having more of what he just got done talking about. Lord, it's sin that hides these realities from me. It's my own brokenness, my continued desire to put myself first. When David slept with Bathsheba, he was functioning as his own God. He was defining for himself what is right and wrong. And what does that do? It hides the fact that God knows me. It hides the presence of God from me. It challenges and takes advantage of the freedom to do what is right and uses that freedom to do what is wrong. And in in doing so, instead of being amazed, we become embarrassed and ashamed. Instead of being loyal, we find ourselves divided. And so he says here, the third reaction to grace is that the only way to combat those things and the greatest pleasure in life is not to get this or that thing from God, but is to have God himself. Like the Israelite priests, they shall have no portion of the land for God himself is their portion. For the one who has Jesus has everything. And so he says, this is his deep request. Lord, show me if there's anything in me that's hindering my ability to know you, to be with you, to be transformed by you. Show me, Lord. I just want to live amazed. I want to live loyal. And I want to live surrendered. Those are the appropriate responses to grace. Your church is called Grace City. I pray that today you leave with a more robust understanding of this incredible and powerful word. Grace is God's gift to us in Jesus, but it's so much more than that. For the gift of Jesus is that Jesus reminds us that God refuses to exist without us. That he loves us so much that he's willing to take our brokenness into himself and make it his own. That he loves us so much that he is willing to defeat sin and death and the devil and the dominions of darkness so that we could live free, free in our relationship with him, free to be conduits for him. Are you amazed by him? Are you loyal to him? Are you surrendered to him? He knows you. He is with you. He has the power to change you. These are the facets of grace. May we respond with amazement loyalty and surrender. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much uh, for your gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would empower us to live in the light of your grace. Forgive us for taking advantage of grace. Forgive us for misunderstanding your grace. May we see its beauty, its fullness. May we see your glory. May we know, Lord, the power to live fully for you. 
And Lord, we just want to come before you and recognize, Lord, that there's times when we're not amazed. That there are times, Lord, when we are divided. And there are times when we take our own lives into our own hands and live as our own gods. And Jesus, we just want to repent of that. And we just want you to reveal yourself to us in power. Lord, may we recognize and experience the fullness of your grace. Thank you that you know us and love us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you that you've placed your spirit within us to transform us from the inside out. May we be amazed, loyal, and surrendered. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.